0: Welcome to Structural Shifts by Aperture, a bi-weekly show that radically reimagines the future of work, society, and business. We take a devil's advocate approach to exploring the massive shifts, transforming our economies and our world. And our guests are not afraid to challenge the status quo. To learn more about Aperture, visit aperture.co. Aperture.co. There is a lot of anguish over what's happening online these days, from the rise of hate groups to media manipulation to propaganda to interference with elections. Are the positives of our digital world even worth it? Well, today, your host, Ben Robinson, digs into this question with Belen Romana Garcia, Spain's former head of treasury and an economist who has worked in both the public and private sectors. Belen is also a board member for several public companies and foundations. And she says that people are primarily driven by three things power, money, and knowledge. And she is especially driven by knowledge and curiosity and a desire to understand the world and its possible future. Today, she and Ben discuss, should our elected officials have to learn how to code to better understand the world that we're living in? Should we scrap GDP as a metric since it's not accurately reflecting our service economy? Does democracy equal voting? And how does the information and infrastructure of our online world affect our freedom, or a sense of freedom in real life, and more. Enjoy the episode.
1: Thank you very much for joining us. So the key theme that we wanted to pick up on today is one that you talk about a lot, which is the notion that software is everywhere. And it's this idea that as software has become more powerful, it's proliferated, and it's become much more pervasive in our lives, our communication, our politics, our industry. And I thought maybe a good jumping off place might be the quote from Peter Thiel, the one that we, you know, where he said, We wanted flying cars. Instead, we got 140 characters. So, has this world of pervasive software delivered on its potential? I.e., do you think that the world is now better for having so much software in it?
2: Definitely. I think that we are uh, better off. We can communicate better. We can find more data, store that data, analyze that data, deploy uh, that data. So, I think that information in itself is a, is a huge good that we have in abundance. So, that's a much better world. Of course, when you have any advances, scientific advances, or new ways of, of creating value or knowledge. That does not come without its flaws and without its problems. And it takes time for societies to understand the real implications, good and bad, by the way, of any advance. So I think that we are better off. It's a sort of a trial and error thing. We, we are understanding the implications, the advantages, the disadvantages. And, and it will take some time until we do understand the whole thing. And so we'll take some time until we get the rules right. And we will try again and again and again, and finally, at some point, we will have a reasonably good set of um, of rules. So I think that we are better off. But we are—we should be quite modest in terms in terms of we have to understand that this is a journey that we have, I think, just started as societies, and it w- will take us some time to really get it right.
1: If we think about some of the negative applications of of digitization, we might think about you know, is scope for manipulation, for example, or we might think about, you know, s- some of the scary things that people say about where AI is headed, right? You know, that, you know, we'll, 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 we'll be controlled by software rather than it kind of being used as a tool for by us to improve our lives. But ha- you believe that on balance overall, it's been a force for the good? I
2: think so. Of course, it has many dangerous, but that happens with anything that you can think of. When uh, cars started, there were so many dangers around that and there were no rules. So it took some time, decades, to set the rules and understand what is good, what is bad, what should be done, what shouldn't be, who should be controlling that, how should uh, the authority control that, how can we drive around the world. So there, there were a number of things that happened over a decade, but finally the car gives us many things. Of course, good and bad, but some. And you, if you understand the real implications, and that includes, for example, climate change, then you get to have a much better um, deployment of, of that advance. You know, as human beings, we usually get to understand, control, and react. So, so the, the fact that some advances have um, danger, dangers—that's always the case. That's that happens with medicine, that happens with pharmaceuticals, that happens with Anything you can think of, basically. And, and, and reality uh, leads us to think that, that once we get to understand, then things are look much better after that advancement than before. The problem, of course, is always the transition period. Yeah. So since this is a trial and error, and it will take time for us to get it right, there will be many things that will happen that won't be good, and people that will be harmed. That's absolutely the case, and, 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 and that's a very difficult point because, as said, when it's something new, we don't really understand the, the final implications. So this trial neuron, and you see that everywhere. Um, so we didn't know that Facebook could be a potentially dangerous uh, tool for political institutions. The suffering, that outcome, to understand, yeah, this may happen. And now we are starting to think, should we do something? What can we do? What, what are the limits? So um, does it mean that, that social networks should be banned? I don't think so. They should be used for good. It's like with the cars. I mean, the, 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 fa- the fact that a car is a dangerous tool doesn't mean that you should control it. You should regulate it.
1: And if we just continue for a second with that analogy of the car, where do you think we are in this in this transition? You know, so it took a long time for, you know, before cars had seatbelts, it took a long time before cars had emission standards. How far into this digital tra- transition do you think we are, and how good a job do you think the rule setters are doing?
2: We are on a on a very very early stage, and 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 it's very difficult for rule to set the rule, and one of the things that I worry about uh, around this setting the rules is the fact that parliaments understand laws, but they don't understand codes. Turns out that codes are also ruling our lives. So if we don't get them to understand codes, to understand that language, it will be very difficult for them to set the right rules. And I think that we're far from that. If, it, as always, as if, if you had a council of wise men, old men, that had to set the rules they couldn't read and they had to set the rules for the printing press. They would just say, okay, whatever is printed that I cannot read should be fair, balanced, whatever. But they cannot enforce it because they cannot read the book. I think we're in a similar situation where individuals setting the rules do not speak the language, cannot read the code. And hence, all they are doing so far is giving this open recommendation of should be fair and and avoid bias and these things. But then they they're driven by the outcome and they cannot prevent it from happening because they don't understand. Yeah. So I think that we are at a pretty early stage. We need rulers that understand codes.
1: I think the EU cookie policy is a very good example of policy that's set by people that don't understand the nature of the digital world. What about economists? So you're an economist. How good a job do you think economists are doing at understanding the new world and changing their measurement tools? You know, I give you a, a, to make it more concrete. We basically live in a world where we don't think we have any inflation. We think productivity growth sucks, but is that really the case? Because you know, there might not be you know inflation in the price of streaming. Music, but there feels like there's a lot of inflation in in other areas, healthcare, and so on. Do you think we're using the right measurement tools for the digital world?
2: We economists are are really struggling because we are we are all educated in a world in an industrial world. So if you take GDP, GDP nominal versus real is inflation. GDP is a very industrial concept in many ways. I mean, it started as one physical thing times the price. And that is GDP, and the, the evolution of both the number of, of physical things and the prices leads you to the to, to GDP real and nominal. We started struggling with services, so you know that for decades, for example, financial services were not part of the GDP because no one thought it was it could be measured in terms of any uh, value added so. With services, which is um, something in the middle between digital and industrial, we did struggle to understand productivity, to measure. You don't have a physical thing, you know, whatever glasses um, times uh, the price. It's services, and you don't know what that means in a, in a, in a very industrial world. So, so we tried to build this bridge with services. Did, did a very good job, but reasonably good, I think. But if you jump to digital, you don't have this vertical approach to sector, which is very industrial. So, and, and there's this this huge debate now in the economist world around one uh, inflation and two productivity, as you were rightly saying. You know that that there are now two camps. Some people saying we're heading into a world of no inflation forever. And some people thinking that we are heading into, into a high inflation world because finally um, a monetary uh, phenomenon. But, but as I said, I struggle with, with that. And I'm, it's difficult to, to get cyber economy into this, the cyber factor into the GDP. I'll give you one example that I always think of. The value of, for Google of having Germany, where is it? Is it part of the, GDP, the German GDP? It doesn't look like that because that value is not the revenue The revenues coming from the, the German art. Much more than that. It's a network. So it's part of the network that increases the value of the whole network. That's not part of the German GDP. Where is it? My point is that probably it's part of the Google market cap. And that's why, because of this cyber GDP, we are not measuring, we are not taxing we are not tracking. So we don't know how uh, whether we are getting richer or not. We don't know um, whether we have the, a fair tax system or not. Basically, there's part of the GDP that is not there. And, and you see that again and again and again. You, you, uh, you gave the, the music uh, industry as an example. That's a perfect example of something like that. So we used to have a music industry that could be measured in an industrial way. The number of LPs or the number of stores. or That was easily. Or the number of concerts. And then you have tickets times price. Then all of a sudden comes streaming. Basically, in terms of GDP, the music industry has disappeared because you don't have much employment. You don't have tickets. You don't have LPs. So you don't have physical things that you can measure. Even then, we have never been able to access so much music in our lives. Yeah not necessarily for free you pay for that I mean Spotify you pay for it but you access a huge store of music that you can choose you can find whatever that's not part of the GDP
1: yeah it seems to me um that that the abundance that you talk about translates into consumer surplus right which is you know by definition not captured because it's surplus and I I, I often wonder if like If we could, if we were able to sort of better understand consumer surplus and somehow feed that back into GDP, that might be a way of capturing some of the benefits. But I just wonder, in general, if GDP is just—you know—we should scrap it if it's just obsolete and we should start again. Because you know what I mean. It's like you're you're saying—you know—it's a bit like inflation. You have RPI minus X, RPI minus Y, and it's like how many—you know—how many things can you augment a a sort of broken metric for in the end before you have to just start again?
2: Well, the fact that we. We are using not a perfect measurement does not mean that we should use none. so so for me, the key thing is understanding is again understanding that we are missing part of of the economic evolution, wealth, whatever you want to call that, and that we need to develop other means. We will still have a, a physical world we will see we still have still have services but we are missing digital. so I think that one of the key things for uh, first universities and probably also um, statistical authorities is developing that understanding of how do we measure this is a new thing it does exist it does create value so this is again a very old um, very old debate uh, value versus price and 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 that impacts everything so i'll give you another example it's competition policy the competition policy is basically based on The knowledge or the if the prices are low, competition works because the prices are the final signal of a monopoly or oligopoly. Turns out that's not the case because we're not paying with money. We're paying with data and data have no value, no price. So they're for free. So all of a sudden you have a competition policy based on a very industrial uh, concept that needs to adapt to something different, which is we're paying with our souls, so to speak, our data. So so I think that the key thing is for first I, um, or both universities to start thinking about this and 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 and, and I think that some uh, have already started thinking of this concept of cyber GDP and value versus price. What happens when you have value but no price or a price that does not fit much with the value, as in the case with data, so so I wouldn't say okay, we don't use GDP anymore, but I think that mm, we should at once develop other complementary ways of measuring and understanding the digital world.
1: I just wanted to return to that idea of regulating the digital economy because, as you say, you know, in the past the litmus test was you know our prices going up to the end consumer, yes. therefore the sign of you know yes. of the A company has market power and can, you know, uh, manipulate pricing. How do we regulate networked businesses? And how worried are you about the sort of increasing size and influence of some of the largest platforms?
2: Over the years, when you have a huge concentration of power, you have a problem as a society and as a state. By the way, the concentration of power is always dangerous. So, so one of the things that I that I really wonder is why people, and that happens especially with uh, younger uh, generations, do not care about giving away their information to companies, but they care about giving information to, to the state. And if you live in a democratic state, you do have rules, you have a transparent system where you know your rights and you have tools to defend your rights. That's not the case with the large platforms, and there are millions of that. You have Facebook measuring uh, video uh, views and charging for it. So it's the same as the judge um, and, and, and the defendant is the same. Or um, and you have no ability to prove that whatever video you posted has been more or less than another one. Or so you know, there's this starting to, to I'm starting to read articles on the corporation as a courthouse because in a, within a, the Amazon world, it is much more efficient to solve conflicts within Amazon than using the courts. That's, I think, hugely problematic because as a citizen, you don't know the rules. Those are not transparent organizations. You cannot, I mean, if you live in a democracy and you don't like the prime minister, you can vote against him and at some point, or her, and at some point the guy leaves. You cannot vote against Sperberg. So you don't have any access to understanding how it works, what your rights are, and who, how how can you defend your rights? What kind of tools do you have? Whereas democratic societies have all those things quite clear. So for me as a citizen, I would rather give my uh, my information to a democratic state, a democratic state, than to someone who I cannot access. I don't know where I am. So these platforms are huge have a um, have a huge power in economic financial political social and they have no rules so so i think that we do need to to regulate those platforms and they basically act as monopolists in their different fields so you have a set of huge monopolies and that's nothing by the way nothing new we had that in the in the late 19th century where were in the US there were again a number of huge monopolies and the state at some point reacted and I said okay hold on we we need to do something about um, mobile or, or we, we need to do something about um, many different industries the oil industry one, but then telecoms and then so because the power was too too much. I think we are exactly the way we were at that point. And in order to avoid that, the, the um, competition policy was born. Now I think we need to think of another competition policy. But I, I don't know whether that's enough. And probably you also need to... All the, all the states have a regulation for network industries, but network industries are something much more national. This is international. This is international. Yep. And we don't have common rules. We have common rules of how do we rule the seas. And that's similar. So, you know, th- there are a number of things that that, that there's an international law around these. We don't have an international law around digital. And, so, and that means sometimes we don't even have a national law around digital. So I think that we need to develop that.
1: Yeah, I suppose the only good precedent there, you know, whether we think it's a good piece of legislation or not, something like GDPR does, even though it's a, you know, it's, it's a, um, a law that's imposed within one sovereign area, which is the EU. It does tend to have ramifications outside of that sovereign area because you know, if you want to do business in the EU, you have to, you know, you have to treat customer data in a certain way. And what tends to happen is those policies then tend to become Globally applied, right? So, so, but I just wonder in general. You know, I think you know. You said earlier on that we have politicians that you know understand law, but they don't understand code. I think is what you said, And, and and you know that was never more evident than in in the times that sort of the big platforms are brought to Congress. You know, for their for their annual grilling, right? And I'm just wondering, you know, if if it's difficult to impose regulation cross border, and if it's difficult for our Current generation of politicians to impose the right kind of regulation at all is the answer. Maybe to devolve more responsibility down to us as individuals and, and and some way try to give us more transparency so that we make better informed decisions about the platforms we use and what we share with them and so on. Do you think that could be the answer? So, i.e., you, you know, put more responsibility in in our hands.
2: For a number of reasons, one is they are monopolies, so that's the first point. The second point is is, is the nature of data. The problem with data is that the value comes from the aggregation. So on your own, you cannot get value from your data because your data, my data, have no value on themselves. So you have to aggregate. And aggregation means something that goes farther than the individual. So the combination of the two things, make it very difficult for individuals to really be responsible or so you're asking for you would be asking them for something they cannot do basically because they don't have the means i'll give you one example that that for me gdpr is a i mean it is at least the first step but but i I really like the right to be forgotten because that's something that you gave away your information or someone gave away your information in a situation when we didn't really know the the uh, Consequences of that. And then you suffer those consequences. You know, the right to be forgotten was a concept that was born in Spain. <laughs> so it was a Spanish case that, 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 led to this thinking of this is unfair because someone did someone something three decades ago. The guy is suffering from it again and again and again. And the problem is, I'll give you one example. If you are, you have a public appointment in Spain, your, um, number gets public published and at the same time it looks like that should be private and and uh, you know years ago i had an attack and, and the police told me but i mean everyone knows where you live and you're i just created a number and i said yeah but that wasn't that was that came from the fact that i was a public official so all of a sudden you have something that 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 was a rule thinking of a different world And all of a sudden, it becomes a threat, and you cannot do anything because that is not part of the right to be forgotten. That's nothing wrong, but it's part of my privacy. And even then, it's there. So, so as individual, I cannot do much. Think of that—that—that I need infrastructure of authorities, courts that help me protect my rights, understand and protect my rights. So, I don't think that individuals are the way out.
1: So so, re- so regulations are th- still a thorny issue. And the other issue I wanted to talk about was this this idea of you know y- your idea of sort of policing the seas, right? Because what are the seas? You know so w- 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 <laughs> sorry, I'm getting lost slightly in the analogy but like w- w- you know what's what's the landmass what's the sea and if if Europe is a landmass you know And we don't have any really large platforms. Where where do we stand? I mean, how how you know, for example, how how, for how long can Europe impose regulation like GDPR when it doesn't have platform companies a bit of its own? Because it's it's a bit like you know we're imposing legislation on companies that aren't even in our jurisdiction.
2: But but that's why I like the analogy of the seas because national law you do regulate companies that are not part of your uh, jurisdiction, and and I think that the internet is has been. Almost a global ocean. I think it's not anymore. The, the exception being, of course, China. Right from the beginning, the Chinese thought, "Oh, well, this is this is an ocean. I want to control my ocean. I want to set the rules." And I think that 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 we are e- clearly moving into a world of fragmented internet, where we again have different—not an ocean, but different oceans or seas, if you want—and and and you see that the Russians announced. That, they, that at some point they wanted to close their internet and have a sort of a narrow um, channel into their internet. so okay, that they can control both their internet and the channel. The Chinese of course control that. I, the, I think that the US is thinking also of we need to think of how we control and, and have a walled garden if you want that, 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 that we know what is going on, who's doing what and we can react to that. So, this dream of an open internet for every country, eh, whatever, I think it's over. And, and of course, that worries me in terms of Europe because so Europe has advantages and disadvantages. The, 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 ad, the disadvantage is that, of course, we lack any sort of. <laughs> That's a huge disadvantage. The advantage is that that, that we still are the largest market in the world. we are interesting. The problem is when you're not interesting at all, then you're done. But when you can add value then you get to you have some tools to, uh, to 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 regulate that value that you are creating. So I think that 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 Europe has that right and that ability and also the tradition. I think that that we do have the tradition. We may over-regulate sometimes, but we know how to regulate. And we think of uh, of, of the individual as someone that has to be protected. Um, that's that, that, that comes from a long, long tradition of European thinking, philosophy, political science, sociology, anything you can think of. So from that point of view, look, Europe has a chance. The thing is, for me, that if you, we, we use another analogy, Um, and we think of the late 19th century and how the industrial power was built, and that means power for states or companies, there were three things. The ability to produce things, the ability to move those things, so you, you needed a physical infrastructure, and then the rules of the game. And if you look at the industrial world, the industrial powers what they did is, okay, I produce, I build infrastructure. The train being the first one in quite. Clear. If you look at the the how the, the trains were were designed in the 19th century, you you knew who was powerful, who wasn't in terms of countries, and was losing the battle. And only looking at that map is clear. And then the rules of the game, which is free trade, that coincidentally only applied to industrial goods, not to agricultural. Okay, we're done. Hundreds of hundred years, and then digital power. Who can produce, store, and analyze data? Very few countries or companies. The infrastructure are the platforms. We lack the infrastructure, yep. and then the rules. So far, we haven't got any rules. No rules at all. I mean, not even this free trade rules. We didn't have a rule because we didn't thought, think we needed it. So, in 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 the twenty first century, those Either countries or regions or companies uh, for that matter that will rule the world will be the ones that will be able to do the three things produce, store and analyze data, move around those data, the platforms, and then set the right.
1: So how, how worried are you about Europe? Yet? Because at the moment we're we're trying to set the rules to some extent. You know, GDPR, for example, PSD two, but we don't produce or move the goods right or, or we don't produce and have the infrastructure so we won't be able to set the rules for very long in that in that case right so so where where does that leave us and 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 can and do you think the game is over in terms of creating the infrastructure
2: I think we are really far behind really. but it's like does it mean that then we have to say okay we give it up i think we should we should fight and fighting means a number of things one is, if we could understand how to rule this right, if we could read the code, we would have a huge advantage. And that's something that we could develop. Another thing that, for me, is helpful is that the fact that we're starting to listen to the European Commission talking about digital, which is quite a new thing, uh, in, in, a, in a much uh, in a more thoughtful way. And I'll give you one example. But for me, it was how this... So the European authorities... Came to the conclusion. I think that's my really I have to say that they came to the conclusion that okay we have lost the war on personal individual data, but there's a huge wave of data coming, which is data, data coming from systems, physical things. We are an in industrial power. Yeah. Why don't we build on that? I think that is a that is great because by the way, physical things you get to personal data. So even though we lack the platform for personal data, which is the case, we could build plat- platforms around uh, non-personal, non- non-human data, if you want it. data stemming from from goods or uh, systems. I thought this is good because instead of wasting resources, fighting something that's going to be very difficult because you are late, let's try to build something that is not built anywhere else. And then we won't be late. So, um, that for me, was that, that's a very um, useful way of understanding that. And, and, and I think that with COVID-19, uh, the European Union uh, ha- has, is using it in a positive way, so to speak, which is that the European Union as a project is built on conflicts. has always evolved out of problems. It's not when everything works and it's peaceful, Whenever there's a problem and a crisis, right from the beginning, the inception, the European uh, Union evolves and tries to build on that. I think that now is starting to happen that. I mean, Europe as a soft power and Europe as someone that understands that there are two huge guys, giants rising, which is the US and China and thinking that they don't like each other as much as they did in the past. And, and Europe is in the middle. That could be a potential advantage if we are smart enough. So for me the the, the the worst part of it would be if we thought of it as when you are uh, you have a castle on your right another castle in your left and you have you you are on the plane then whoever comes you're done. Yeah. That that is not the, the way to understand that. Um I think because then we're done. If we build on our of, of, on our chances, I think, and, and we do have chances. I think that's quite clear. You know, with the cloud, we're late, but still, you know, the Germany and France are thinking or are starting to create a cloud. Will it be like that? Will it be as competitive? Will it be? We'll see. But but I think that's a that's a that's a right move. We should have uh, done, made that move long ago, but at least we're starting. So in in relative terms, we are behind the US and China but we are ahead with the rest of the world. So so I'm I'm hopeful and I think that that Europe is built on on this notion of of, of the individual as the right, which is differential I think.
1: It's quite interesting what's happening with TikTok, right? Because it I think yours is probably a good way of thinking about this right which is you got the sort of Chinese castle, the US castle. Do you think what we're now seeing is, you know, those, those two citadels are trying to now establish and define their spheres of influence? And so, you know, TikTok was a case of, okay, you're, you know, that, that's, that's almost like an invading army and we're, you know, we're not going to allow that into our citadel. And then everything that's happening with TikTok in India seems to be a bit like, you know, India's kind of aligning around the US castle. And and you know, and then I think your 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 current description of the of the Europe and kind of no man's land is quite accurate because Europe hasn't yet, I don't think, really um, decided which castle is going to align itself with, and maybe that's as you say, maybe that's a uh, that's a for for a short period of time that gives us a position of of, of, of influence because we can ar- arbitrage between those two castles. And um, but is that is that the way you think about the world, which is that that's where we are now? We've got. You know, the the idea of like this, you know, Pax Americana kind of world that was global is over, and increasingly nations are going to have to choose between, you know, which of these two castles they align themselves to, or do you think there'll be more castles like the Russian castle, the African castle?
2: Long list of things that you mentioned. One is um, India. I don't think that India is aligning with the US. I think that India is thinking, I'm large enough, and I'm advanced enough, and I have the the knowledge and the um, human capital needed to build my own castle. So what I think that they are doing is, okay, let's create our own, in this case, apps. For them, it's much more the understanding of this is exactly a backdoor that you can use to look around. I don't want you to have that. It's not only the influence, it's also the information that you get. So so I think that, that India, you know, one of the things with digital, it looks like it, the network effects come with with a huge amount of data, and a huge amount of data, if talking about personal data, comes from large populations. India, which is a very large country, has the means to create their own network effects. They don't need to have anyone else. They are, as it happens with China, they are large on their own. They don't need to have anyone else to create network effects. So, so I think that they have understood that, and they want to build on that. And, and from that point of view, neither the U.S. nor Europe, on our own, I think I don't think we are large enough in terms of that sort of pool of population and dates. Probably, we need to think of something that combines both. Otherwise, it's very difficult. If you think of if the U.S. thought, okay, I'm closing my castle; it's only us. That's not enough. That's clearly not enough. They need to think of of, of other ports of population. And um, probably we will see at least. I think that large countries will try to build their own castle. Brazil is another example of a country that thinks that they are large enough, they have the means, they have the knowledge to to do something on their own. And and so so we will have that as it happens with it. You think of the industrial world. The world of course the the, the, the first yeah. industrial power was the UK, but then Germany reacted pretty soon and then the US also. So you you ended having a number, a short number of industrial powers, but a number of industrial powers. So I think that we will see something similar. Not only two will have I think we will have a number of, of powers. And I think I hope that Europe will use that as an as as a chance.
1: Because I think what's interesting about India is with geo, right, they've almost sort of separated infrastructure from production, which is to say, you know, since we own the infrastructure, we'll allow, you know, f- foreign companies, you know, or, or American platforms to, to, to operate on the infrastructure, but we own the infrastructure. So we have, yeah. you know, we have, we have a certain level of sovereignty that. The, the Europe, for example, doesn't have because we neither have the platforms nor the infrastructure, right? So I wonder if that might be the model. For, as you, you, you referenced Brazil. I wonder if that might be the model that is followed by others, right? At least then you have a stake in the digital world, whereas you know, if you own neither the infrastructure nor the platform you have.
2: No, I, I agree. I think that, 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 that at least you need to control the highway. And then you get to decide which car can go through that highway and whether you have to charge or not and the whole thing. If you lack the everything, if you lack the high the, the highway and the car, you're done. Um, so, so uh, as it was the case in in the in the industrial world, you needed to have uh, infrastructure for trains, and that you built, controlled, and and then otherwise, if someone else, one example again, we didn't have the money to build our own infrastructure in the nineteenth century. What's the UK that? British companies that built it, so they did it for their own, not for the Spanish um, people. It was more to extract value out of mines, basically. So we had exactly the wrong infrastructure that we did not own, not control, nor design. You're done. You cannot succeed succeed in the better world with those weaknesses.
1: I want to pick up something that that you talk about, which is that democracy does not equal voting. What, what do you mean when you say democracy does not equal voting, and and how is that somehow a digital, or, or or how is that sort of relevant to this digital shift?
2: People tend to think that if I vote, that's fine. Then I can I can defend my my rights, but that's not true. It's for example, you have certain rules uh, to control propaganda or financing in a democracy, or what kind of information you can can give of oh, oh, how long uh, are you always on campaign or can you be bombarding people again and again and again to get to do you give them one day of to think what, whatever so a number of things that that complement the voting but i think that we have completely forgotten that those that infrastructure of rules is key and if you don't have that then voting doesn't any dictator can organize a voting and quite coincidentally is always to his advantage It's always 95%. But it's not the voting. It is the whole thing that comes before the voting that grants that, that that grants that, that voting will be a legitimate exercise in terms of uh, democratic existence. So so that for me is key is not only uh, so you can you can Opt out Facebook. That's a voting. You vote with your feet, which does not change much. I have to say, because you have nothing else and you are out. Facebook, but that's not much. So,
1: so you're, so you're arguing almost when we're, you know, um, succumbing to this this illusion that because we get to vote more often and there are more referenda, yeah. that we're somehow yeah. more empowered and 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 you know we have more control over our affairs whereas you're saying the opposite is true because if i understand what you're saying rightly you're saying a lot of the the sort of underpinnings of democracy as we think about it are being washed away or eroded by digitization so can we just can we just delve slightly into that so if we think about some of the things that are critical to a democracy such as you know having accurate information is is that is it principally around information that you think that democracy is being eroded or do you see other areas where where the sort of you know the the waves of digitization are, are, are sort of washing and aware uh, that
2: I'll give you one example. I can access loads of information. Does it mean that I can self-diagnose uh, my illness? That's a completely wrong. I have information but not knowledge. So the difference between information and knowledge now is quite clear. That has never been the case over centuries in human history. So we need mm-hmm. to understand that's this difference. And You know this. There was this um, very interesting exercise. Uh, IBM has this project Debater, and and they created um, a machine that can debate with a with a person. And they had this public exercise that you can watch on YouTube of a guy debating with a machine. And the audience. That exercise was was um, arranged by uh, Intelligence uh, Square US, and they have they always have this mechanic whereby. The public first says that they are against or for whatever proposition and then after the debate they vote again. The the party that has moved more wheels, if you want, or more opinions, way. They did exactly the same. And and, and and the proposition was should we should states finance preschooling education? And the machine was told to say yes and why? And 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 the individual, no and why. And the exercise was for me. Quite telling because, of course, the machine came from, with hundreds of examples of data. He you and 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 the individual less, but some. But he, even though he voted, he was against that proposition. And most of the public was for the machine. Right in the beginning, he could move more opinions because he could understand emotion. So all of a sudden, when we all have access to information. And that does not give us knowledge. That means that we can look at things the way we like. And of course, you can always find data that justifies your prejudice. That's always the case. You can look at part of the, of the information and that leads you to say, yes, I'm right. Or the other part, which is, I'm, I'm wrong, I don't do at. Finally, when information is for free, we tend to vote out of emotion. And when I saw that exercise, that I found so interesting, I thought, now I understand Brexit. Enough of expression. So, finally, is it? Do I trust you or not? Do I think that you have an intention or not? So, one of the things that I find quite interesting is that 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 there's this crisis uh, in democracy, at uh, least democratic states, that people has is losing trust on institutions, being those. Private, public. And then comes COVID-19. And for me, it was quite a surprise because COVID-19 was the rise of the nation states. They were, they were reborn. And all of a sudden, people turned to them to be protected in many ways. Limiting uh, movement of citizens, um, offering health uh, care, now you know buying vaccines. So the nation state has again become a key player in the um, in the economic and social world, which means that people, when in when in danger or in a situation that is difficult to understand, in a very uncertain situation, they turn to to those that are closer to them and in terms of I but have the size. To protect them, if it's a tiny, if it's only a city. They don't have the size to give me what I need. So I need something larger. I think that's good for democracy. Of course, any economic crisis uh, raises the danger of populism and all these things. So I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not naive from that point of view. But the way I see it, I think that democracies, with this huge crisis, have a chance to rebuild themselves. And for example, the fact that the European Commission is now trying to get to buy enough vaccines, I think that that increases their legitimacy. The problem was at the beginning, the European Commission did not react at all. Yeah. That means that, oh, this guy's impressed with what they're doing, exactly. So it's not only they lacked legitimacy, they lacked action. The fact that when you need someone can protect you, I think that's, that, 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 that gives a chance to, to, to democracies to react and rebuild themselves. But of course, they need to, I said, develop understanding, break the code, means to, to control the rules. So all these things that, that we have been mentioning, and, and of course, build your own infrastructures as well.
1: You often talk about how conception of democracy is so bound up with industrial age um, concepts. that I suppose the other question is, you know, if, if democracy depends on nation states and nation states are, with a long-term view, you know, in, in trouble, and, and if democracy depends on, you know, the institutions of the industrial age, then is democracy in trouble from two sides?
2: No, the, the, the key distribution of wealth comes through wages to work, which is uh, quite a revolution in terms of the, of the history of the human kind. So if you work more, you, you get the chance to be wealthier. And, and that means that, that we are basically all the same because we can become the same over time. And so why can't you vote and not me? And you being first a landowner, then a man or a white man. So if I am a woman and I am uh, black and I am poor, I can't become what you are. So why can't I vote? All right. so right, I'm given the, the, the right to vote. Now, with the digital world, it's again, if we find a way to assign prices to value, that can bring us again to a situation where I can, I can find my earn my living in a in a reasonable way, and hence this whole structure can survive. If that's not the case, if we cannot create, understand how to how value is created and distributed, and therefore how fair our economies are, we don't know how fair they are. Because we don't have the right measurement, again. So we've, we we measure part of the fairness or unfairness, but the rest does not exist. So so if if democracy is a key to grant fairness, then we need to have those tools. Some people will will be helped by training. Some people won't. So you need to think of how can you protect and help people that want be able to be retrained. You know, with COVID nineteen I found quite interesting the fact that live sports have suffered so much and then esports are thriving. So all of a sudden you have a whole sector of esports yep. that that is growing and that that entails employment in many ways.
1: You just mentioned COVID nineteen. As an optimist, I'm confident that the world that awaits us will be better than the world we leave behind. But like you, I'm concerned about the transition period. And I'm, and I'm wondering, because this transition is happening so much faster now on the back of COVID-19, do you think that reduces the scope for civil unrest, wars, or any other nastiness that may happen in the transition to the post-industrial world?
2: In terms of the COVID-19, I'm worried about the, um, the, the short-term economic effects. Right. Mm, that's absolutely true. And it's also true that that it's somehow accelerating these trends. But the positive um, side of it is that they're becoming visible. If a problem exists and it's visible, you can tackle it. The problem that that, that we had is that these trends have been there for 10 years, 20 years, and they weren't visible at all. So there was no no public debate, public worry, um, nothing at all that remote working has been there for a number of years. And some, com- some companies were very good at using remote working and some specific um, groups of people wanted to only work remote. But it was sort of a lateral and residual and, but it was clear that, that it was a trend that at some point would affect many other institutions. Why do we have an industrial organization with a service Economy. That's exactly the case. And all of a sudden, we have found that indeed we did have an industrial organization in a service economy. Well, now it's visible. So now everyone is thinking of how can we do this? Should it be five days a week? Should it be how can we really apply this technology that we already had, but we didn't use? So from that point of view, COVID is making many of these trends visible. And I think. That, that, that is, you know, a forest, a tree that, that, that falls in the forest. Is it falling? Is, no one hears or sees it. It's exactly the same with problems. And, and we only look at problems when they are big enough as societies. Now they have become big enough. So I think that, 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 that will also accelerate the transition in terms of the reaction.
1: The crisis is giving governments a pretext to try new things. You, you could almost see the furlough scheme uh, which I think in the U.S. is called the Unemployment Compensation Program, is like a first experiment in universal income.
2: I, absolutely. And instead of having, you know, the finish, this the, the experiment, now we all are uh, making it. And there will be things that won't work, but we will find which ones. So I think that, that, that's, that's an, another example of things that I think that, that are accelerating. You will get to see that, um, you know, if you use that analogy of the COVID and digital, some populations are suffering more than others, and so they get isolated. So you need to protect them more because they need to be isolated.
1: A lot of people use the war analogy, the idea being that the coronavirus is the enemy. And like in wartime, governments are making unprecedented interventions into the economy you know, to boost aggregate demand, for example. And while we might not see the same need to rebuild physical infrastructure, it's highlighted a need to make other types of investments and they've already had to deploy massive emergency funding. So will governments not, at the very least, post-pandemic, have to fix the tax base?
2: Not only the tax base, but, but also the, the economic structure. If you look at, uh, at the, the the European Union fund, it talks about two things. One is green, and the other one is digital, which is... We need to rebuild the societies, thinking of those two things, which is quite a novelty, I have to say. So we have an enormous amount of money. Rebuild the economic structure, and 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 that is that. I think is a unique opportunity. It's warlike like uh, from that point of view. So we don't have physical uh, infrastructures that have been damaged, as is, as is the case in a in a war, but we have. Industries that, 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 that have been damaged by the digital world and they have not been able to react. And, and so I think that this, I think that's a huge chance uh, to, to it's sort of a partial plan effort in a different way. So it's not bridges and buildings, but it is platforms and data. <sighs> I think that, 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 that there's no clear answer to that. It will depend on, on the society and how they feel that, that one they needed and whether they have someone that will finance that.
1: That idea of a digital and green Marshall Plan is something that Europe is considering. And the US, depending on how the election goes in November, may also be looking at some kind of Green New Deal. But do you think many countries will take this once-in-a-generation opportunity to rebuild?
2: Uh, it depends on, on the country. But in terms of the nation state, is what we are seeing again is, is, states not only regulating, but owning and managing part of the economy, a large part of the economy. So that's more sort of the seventies-like uh, situation where, where you had the state doing two things, right? um So doing things and regulating those things or other things. And I think that, 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 that model that looked completely over, is back. And and it has advantages and disadvantages. So back to the network effect, You need to have much of the technological revolution in the US came from the collaboration between private and public. We, we never had that in Europe. Now we, I think we're going to have that. And it's a precondition. So you need to have both sides of the world collaborating. I think that's the unit size. When you lack both, you lack size or the ability to combine private and public forces, that, that will be, that country will struggle. think it's, it's not only the quality of the politicians, which is key, but also the tools that they have. Probably they won't have the same tools.
1: I want to finish, if we can, on a positive note. You started by saying that digitization has been overwhelmingly a force for the good, We might not yet see it in the GDP statistics or the productivity statistics, but we feel it, in particular as consumers. But then we got onto some more negative topics, how democracy is struggling in the face of digitization, how digitization is dissolving the world into nation states or smaller geopolitical blocks. We also talked about how the transition may be tough, although COVID is definitely speeding it up. But I wanted to finish with you giving us your most Optimistic take on the future.
2: It's difficult for me because I'm I'm not uh, by nature I'm not an optimistic person. I think that the problems that you don't identify, you don't solve. So I tend to focus more on the problems than 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 on thinking that that there won't be problems. I think that. that. So that's uh, it depends on how you define an optimist. But in in my view, I think that we have the chance. To understand better the world that we are already living in, I think that societies have stopped our thinking, which is really, really helpful because it's not an elite thinking. I think the whole whole society is thinking. Um, It happens, uh, this crisis, at a time where we have already suffered much of the, or some of the negative impact of the digital world. So we have had the Facebook political things and things like that. So I think that that we, the, um, awareness is is higher and i think that's very good at all levels of society so for me an optimistic or a positive much more than optimistic i would like to, to call it a positive um, outlook into the future would be democracies get stronger because they understand the rules of the game we we get to measure track and If needed, control the value and impact of digital, and hence we really create abundance and give it away to our citizens. I think that Europe has the size, the human capital, and now the understanding. So we have the tools that let's use them.
1: Thank you so much for coming on the Structural Shifts podcast.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Structural Shifts by Aperture. To learn more about us, visit Aperture.co. We are strategy for the networked age. Until next time.